Following a partner to a foreign country, new city or rural community can impact your career, network and access to continuing education. Brunch is a podcast from the Trailing Spouse Co, where I, your host Joe Palmer, chat with trailing spouses from all over the world. Brunch is a chance to meet trailing spouses, hear their stories, the highs, the lows, as well as advice, tips and tricks to get the most out of your trailing spouse experience. In this episode, I speak with Felicity, an Australian married to an ear, nose and throat surgeon who has moved 15 times in the last 16 years. Felicity speaks very candidly about the trials and tribulations of being married to a medical student who goes on to become a doctor in rural Australia. She talks about the challenges she's faced and how hard she has worked on her own mindset with the help of therapy to get herself to a near sense of contentment. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Just please excuse the builders and the dog in the background throughout the interview. Hello, Felicity. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to have you dialing in. And um, I guess I have to start by fully disclosing to the listeners that um, you and I, I was trying to work out, have known each other since 1996, since we were in year seven, we went to high mm. school together. And um, so it is, you have to forgive me in advance if you're listening to this and I say things that sound all too familiar. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I will just make it very clear that I'm allowed to be cheekier with you than I am with people that I've only met on the podcast for the first time. <laughs> There There is, there is. So I would love to start with you kicking us off to tell me who you are, where you are from and where you are based now. Sure. Um, So I'm Felicity. Um, I'm a wife to my husband, Dan, um, and we have two daughters who are seven and four. And at the moment we live in the Southern Highlands in, um, which is, an hour and a half southwest of Sydney in a regional town. Um, it's quite a large town though. Um, and uh, yes, so, and by way of background, I studied, uh, my degree was in agricultural science um, and I worked in various roles until 2021. Um, and since then I've done a bit of consulting work and are currently not employed outside of our home. So I'm a full-time mum and wife at the moment. So you have got an interesting trailing spouse story because you, like um, a previous uh, guest that we've had on the podcast, are a medical trailing spouse. And I guess I'm, well, I'm really interested to sort of dive into a whole lot of questions because um, it's been fascinating slash disturbing at times to watch you from a distance with the amount of moving that you have done (laughs) over the last few years so Mm -hmm. do you want to give us a bit of a a bit of background around what Dan does and what that has sort of looked like if you can give us a, a sort of timeline over what his career has looked like and what that has meant for you being the wife that's cruising alongside with him um so our 
statistic of moving was we moved 15 times in 15 years. Um, we've been here now for two years, so now we've only moved 15 times in 16 years. Um, <laughs> so, but um, the reason was, as you said, um, Dan's work. So he um, is an ear, nose and throat surgeon. Um, there is a technical term that I can't quite pronounce properly, but so he's an ear, nose and throat surgeon. Um, he, um, we moved because of his work and training. So we married um, when we were quite young in 2007. At the time I had just started, like I'd just graduated uni and I was working and Dan was a medical student. So he had 18 months left in his degree. Um, he finished that and then we had he had to apply for positions to do his intern and residency, which is his junior doctor training, general training. Um, he had the option of applying to somewhere in Sydney and you get placements um, and change different hospitals. And we, we've always um, had an interest in regional and rural Australia. So our one other option was uh, Orange, which is three and a half hours west of Sydney. Um, and if we went there, we would be there for two years instead of changing regularly. So Dan applied and he got the position in Orange and we moved there in 2009. Um, and so he had um, two years there of his training. During that time, he had to work out what he might like to specialise in. Um, I can still remember the day that he came home and said, I think I've decided what I want to do. And I was quite excited to hear what that was. Um, and in my mind, I was happy for him to do whatever he wanted, except be an obstetrician gynecologist. Because um, I just thought, oh my goodness, the on-call of that would be dreadful. <laughs> like children, you can't always plan when they're going to be born. Oh, that would be big. Thankfully, he didn't want to be an obstetrician. Um, and instead, he said he wanted to do enos and throat surgery. So um, that was the start of him, um, us trying to work out what that would be. That meant that um, in that year, he lived away for three months. He decided to do a rotation at Westmead in Sydney. So, yeah, we lived apart for those three months. Um, he'd visit on weekends or I'd go down. But, um, yeah, and then the next year um, we were uh, he was able to stay in Orange um, and do his um, first unaccredited year in nose and throat surgery and begin the, uh, the process of applying for the training program. Um, yeah, which worked really well for us because at the time of moving to Orange, um, I was looking for work and there wasn't really anything that appealed. So I started doing some postgraduate study um, that was going to take three years. So I was able to finish that before we left Orange and started the journey of the application and the moving constantly. Um, when we were in Orange, we did have to move three times. So that did add to our moving. We moved every six months there just for hospital accommodation and buying a house and all those kind of things as well. So, yeah, that was the start of the journey. Um, My goodness. There, can I just, we... can I interject there? Can I interject there by almost, well, I had a, <laughs> a little internal 
laugh out loud when you said, oh, God, I hope he doesn't become like an obstetrician or a gyno because the, the, the overtime and the out of hours and all of those sorts of things. I love that when people sort of say that, but then there is always like emergency surgeries for all sorts of things that are calling people in at all sorts of crazy hours. Surely is he doing some out of hours stuff or is it a lot more structured? Is it kept more nine to five like surgery hours nowadays? Nowadays, but how naive I was to think that that was only for, you know, babies being born in the middle of the night. Um, (laughs) The the training has been very intense and unpredictable. Um, Yeah, which we'll probably talk about. But um, for example, um, a lot of the rotations through major hospitals have been Dan being on call every second day and every second weekend. Um, He often was staying at the hospital um, overnight um, or otherwise he'd just spend the night driving back and forth. And we at times... um, just said it was safer for him to stay at the hospital than be driving back and forth after a few, not new misses, but just him kind of going, oh, I can't remember driving to work, but I can remember red lights that I didn't stop at. Um, I actually fell asleep waiting for the traffic light, those kind of things. So, um, yeah, it, it was intense. Um, I think any surgical specialty is intense, and I think it's improved since... I mean, it's been 15 years, so they have changed a few things um, and we really hope that it has improved for people to get a bit more safety in their their on-call and things like that. Well, speaking as a potential patient of anyone that is wielding a scalpel anywhere near my ear, nose or throat, I would prefer that they are getting the maximum amount of sleep. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, definitely. And I mean, that came into it all the time and it still is now. Like um, we were just um, on a holiday and coming home on the flight. It was a 15-hour flight and Dan was going to work the next day and we had a choice of who's going to sit with the children and who's going to have their own seat. And to me it was just a given. You've got that seat. You get every bit of sleep on board you can. <laughs> I, I, I'm not responsible for people's lives. Um, yes, I'm caring for two humans and you, but I'm not going to be operating on people. So it's always been like that, that for us as a family, um, and I, I've also made that decision, I don't want him to be compromised. I don't want his patients to be compromised and neither does he. So it is um, yeah, something that we've had to work out and work through. And I think that that is just such an interesting, like, sort of not segue but a really interesting like point to make with the whole discussion around career with a trailing spouse in a medical situation like yours. So I the amount of times that I've had conversations with people when there's that almost not jostling for position but that really that really challenging negotiation around what it looks like for, well, you know, we've we've moved here for your career and I've just got to sort of lump this and being able to sort of start negotiating and push and pull with like a, a partnership around what that looks like. But my default is like, you know, 
no one's a brain surgeon here. No one's actually saving lives with what we're doing here. So there can be a bit more give and, and take in it. But it's just such a it's such a different conversation when it's with someone like yourself when actually, yeah, it is. And there is sort of life and death situations that are not so much, I don't want to make you think, oh my gosh, this is dependent on me. But you know, the the decisions that you guys are making as a family and in your household and your physical location can actually genuinely impact the lives of others quite dramatically. So it's such a it's such an interesting an interesting point. I want to definitely delve more into the fact that like, oh my gosh, 15 moves, like I actually can't even fathom that. And that makes my, like, I feel like I'm getting like a heat rash on my neck. Um, But this concept of career for you over the years has been, like I said, a really interesting, interesting thing to watch and see it sort of evolve. Like you touched on you doing further studies how did how's how has career worked for you over this last fifteen years? Yeah, um, it. I, I guess it's been tricky to be honest. Um, I never had. I wasn't someone who said, "I'm going to be this. I'm going to do that." I feel like um, I fell into agriculture because I was interested in it. I did well at it at school um, and I was trying to choose between physiotherapy and agricultural science. And in hindsight, probably physio would have been a better option because it was health-related. I could have slotted in around Dan, but it didn't happen. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I made the decisions I did. But it has been really tricky. Um, to begin with, I was... Um, like our primary income source, um, and then going in and doing further study. I only did that because we were going to Orange and there wasn't jobs in agriculture. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really want to just um, go and do something for the sake of it. Um, I was, yeah. So, and that was really challenging to do, that um, postgraduate study. It was intense. I think it burnt me a little bit. I just, it was just intense. It was a lot of field work, a lot of writing. And by the end of it, I decided that uh, research wasn't for me. I liked extension. And that was a really great learning. Um, And when I got the piece of paper, I said, it's going in the filing cabinet and I'm not doing anything with that again. Um, So it wasn't, um, and I kind of, so I, I did a, a PhD, a postgraduate um, study in agriculture, and it was something that I kind of, I think over time I I now see that was a great achievement. I got it before I was 30. All these people were saying, that's amazing. But at the time I think I, um, it was just something that I got through and I did and um, I, I struggled through and I, it kind of wasn't my passion, but I could see in my husband someone who loved what he did. He was passionate, determined. He was making a practical difference. And I knew that what I was doing was impacting people, but not in the same way. And I didn't have that love of I have an interest, but I didn't have a passion. I didn't have this 
Dan had something else and it was also brought him joy in his work. And that challenged me a little bit to think about what I might do. Um, and then when we moved back to Sydney for some of his training, um, I just saw an ad. It was a maternity leave position um, in an agricultural company. And I thought, oh, I'll apply for that. Um, it was an administrative role and I just wanted something that I could walk in, walk out of. I didn't realise at the time um, that that would not inspire me um, <laughs> and also I wasn't very well. Um, I'd kind of just completely burnt out from the last three years and so I started a role um, for a few months and just had to resign. I just was fatigued. It was suggested I was could be heading towards chronic fatigue or something like that. So I just stopped um, and took a few months off. Um, and in that time it really showed me that, um, yeah, I didn't have this plan, but I started to think about what seeing Dan have this great passion, it made me think about what do I want to do with my life or what do I want to do with my time? I want to contribute. But I also realised it brought me great joy to see people and be an enabler um, of people. So um, Dan had a great vision. I was doing what I could to support him to keep going with that. And in the next role I was actually offered um, I don't think if I was interviewed I would have gotten the position, but um, the CEO of another company I'd been working with just called me out of the blue and said, would you come and work for me for a couple of days? I've got some things I need some help with. Um, and so I started doing that and it was a, um, a company I ended up working for for nine years. And um, through that I kind of realised for me career, like not it's not necessarily about career but it's what, I guess that Simon Sinek, find your why. Why do you want to do things? Why do, what brings me that sense of success or satisfaction? Um, over time and a lot of personal growth and therapy, I kind of started to realise that what I might not have a career, but what can I do that um, is meaningful and is contributing and doing good? Um, and in the work that I was doing, um, I was working a lot with animal welfare um, and that was a, a great thing. We were building systems, we were building um, resources, we were enabling uh, people to improve animal welfare and things like that. So I could see that that was really good. I was working with a fantastic team. Um, I was growing a lot um, from it. And at the end of the day, I was helping people achieve great visions or not necessarily their dreams but um, that kind of thing and that brought me great joy and so I think now over time and a lot of like I said growth I can see that I may not have a career but I can contribute and that's um, what really matters because if I pursued a career um, we wouldn't be able to raise our children how we want to it wouldn't align with our values Dan can't drop anything at any time to be home. We still don't know every day what day, what time he's going to get home. It's getting more predictable, but at the same time, I mean, uh, we had two weeks where he wasn't home. I think he was home for dinner twice. Um, yeah, three nights that week he was home at 10 o'clock. Um, so it's still very unpredictable. And if we want to provide our children with stability, 
we have a choice to me to go and pursue a career outside of the home, um, which to me personally would be in conflict a little bit um, with what Dan's doing. And we would have to have help in the home. We'd have, we, we wouldn't be able to raise our children together well because we'd just be divided over things. Whereas, um, yeah, part of that is I, we have kind of worked out that for us it's important that we raise our children and therefore that falls to me in this season of life and potentially the rest of Dad's career. Um, but it enables us to be a family, to be together and be around. Um, and, look, it, it's hard sometimes um, It's and it's a season as well. So who knows what, what next year looks like when our youngest starts kindergarten um, and over those years. Um, but I'm still working that out because I don't think I can do the work I did previously um, and be there at school pickup um, and do those kind of things. And it might change, but at the moment, there's a lot of things that I might be restricted in, but I can also see that there's a lot of things I can do um, that is different to what the standard normal career looks like. Yeah, that's so fascinating listening to you because I think how you have just articulated that, I don't know, I don't think I've ever heard you sound so content either because I think that that's probably, would you agree that that would be a word that you're feeling at the moment? Um, it's something that I'm trying to be and work towards. I think there will always be. <laughs> work in progress. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I think I think like um, resigning from work, um, the company I worked for, Joe, you um, you know of them too, and that team was so hard to leave because for nine years they were my stability in the midst of this constant moving. Um, I had an amazing manager who um, grew me a lot and also made it possible for me to keep working even though I was moving into state. Um, I moved overseas. He still wanted to retain me and it was remote working before remote was the thing. Um, and he just continued, like I was always really, um, I always tried to be really honest and transparent with him about um, the uncertainty we had. Um, it was a cycle of every six to 12 months of moving, of not knowing where we were going um, and yeah, I was so grateful that I had that continuity during that time. And so then making the really difficult decision to resign um, was really hard because I was like, well, right now in this situation, we were um, in New Zealand at the time, it was just after COVID, um, it was really hard to make that decision, but I knew that it was no longer working for us as a family. I was unravelling. But I was so realizing that that was my a lot of my friends as well because we had moved so much that these people were constant in my life and I think it was so hard to kind of think I might lose these friends that are dear to me um I haven't lost these friends we've just grown and moved on but it was really hard and it was confronting to think if I'm not doing this outside of being my husband's wife and my children's mother what who am I because so much of life and what we do 
know, we're highly educated people. What am I doing with that education? Am I, and, and so much of my identity, and I think most people's identity is wrapped up in what we do. Um, so if I'm not working outside of the home, what does that mean? And it took me a long time to even know what to write for my employment. Now I'm like, oh, I'll just write silly things or homemaker or whatever. It doesn't actually matter. Um, but it has been really hard because, and it still is, it, it, it's uncomfortable sometimes. I, I know that I sound really contented, but it's a work in progress. And weekly, maybe, maybe, maybe not weekly now, maybe I've gone to fortnightly. I still question, should I be doing this? I could do this. <laughs> what, what should I be do, doing? So it is, well, there is if, that pressure I'm putting it on myself. Yeah, and it's not coming from anywhere else. Well, I say that that pressure is not coming from anywhere else. It's that weird societal pressure that we think is coming from elsewhere that quite often is like noises in our own head. I think um, the go-to job description that you should put down every time is the COO. So you are well and truly the chief operational like um, officer. You are running logistics, time management hostage negotiations, all of the things that go with running a household. You're also, you know, the financials are in there as well. But I think just taking you back to what you were saying, I think that you have absolutely articulated so beautifully what so many people really challenge to say. And even if your head is not actually on board just yet with what you're saying, and again, work in progress, you'll get there. I think what is such an interesting concept is that how do you almost find that contentment and contentment, though I make contentment maybe is not the right word. That makes me sounds like it might be almost a bit wet, but it's how do you actually find genuine joy and satisfaction out of knowing that what you are doing in an unpaid capacity as the COO is actually achieving goals. Mm. And like you said, it might not be my actual life goals and life things that you can tick off a list or, you know, have up on your mood board and those sorts of things. But if you're reframing that, then that can be the thing. You are the the, the enabler and that's such a perfect word for it. So you are enabling a successful surgery on a six-year-old's tonsillectomy or whatever you call them, getting a tonsils removed, um, you've enabled that because there was three square meals, even if one was reheated at work um, by Dan, that were, um, you know, provided that there is a safe, clean home in which to sleep in nice, clean sheets and um, I'm sure amazing block-out curtains. Uh, all of those things are enabling those sorts of things to to happen. But I think what is very important is that you need to have your wins in that I hope that you get to plan all of the holidays and the destinations and the locations because surely that has to be the side note is that you get to do the good holidays. <laughs> yeah, that's something that is like um, the amazing thing is Dan is our holiday planner Um which is what? just such a gift gets, to me. He gets he not only to have the whole joy job, but he gets to plan the holidays as well. Gosh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's for me, right, it's, it's too much. Like my, my mental load is massive. <laughs> so I do 95% of our mental load of, you know, appointments, health, 
I don't know, insurances, Life. whatever it is, Life. administration. Yeah. So, but um, whereas Dan, he gets great joy from organising holidays. And so we've just been on a holiday and it is amazing. He's like, <laughs> I've booked everything. Like we, we do consult each other, but it was amazing. I was like, this is the best holiday ever. <laughs> like, I just have to True. do the day-to-day logistics of the whole. I packed the things. He's done the planning. He's done the bookings. He loves, like, yeah, it's just amazing. And I'm like, oh, so, and along the way we adjusted a little bit as we worked it out. But I was like, I could never have a holiday this good if I booked it because I just don't have the mental capacity. You have the space to do, to do it. it. And yeah. I think that's well, that's so true, that actually, because that's a real holiday, isn't it, when you turn up and everything's done? Like, that is actually, you're right, that is actually a holiday. It is. And, and I think I think something that I really appreciate about our relationship is that whilst I, if from the outside, I've given up a career in some ways um, or it's just taken a different route to what I maybe would have liked it to, um, but at the same time I know that Dan appreciates everything I'm doing and I know that I'm enabling him to do those things and we... Like we've always said that given the time that the work and the study and even the the money that it's been to train, um, we didn't um, we didn't have lots of hobbies or expensive holiday hobbies. One thing that we identified early on that we both enjoyed was holidays and adventuring and discovering together. So we've made it that every year we go on a holiday because that's a break for Dan as well. Like he has to go away because if we're at home, it's just some tasks and you just, you don't really get a break. I mean, he was only ever able to take two weeks. I think we got two and a half months of holidays off, but he's like, I just need to go away. We need to be outside. We're active people. We love being outside. So Holidays is something that brings us joy and it's something we prioritise. It doesn't have to be a super fancy holiday, a super expensive holiday. It's just going away and being together because there's no interruptions or there's limited interruptions with that and things like that. So um, when you said holidays, it's like, yes, we've had these amazing holidays and it's been an intention that we've kind of had to reconnect, to try to relax as relaxing as holidays are with children, um, but restore each other, like re, like just step away from it all. Um, yeah, so there has been amazing things like that. Yeah, I'm glad um, that, that you are. That I'm glad you put that bit in. <laughs> I'm glad you put that bit in about the kids <laughs> because I feel I now have a seven and a nine-year-old and I only feel like our holidays are starting to feel like holidays mm-hmm. again now rather than just the same Groundhog Day but in a different location. <laughs> Yeah, I've always gone with the saying of like, same problems, different location. It's, it's, yeah. Yes, that's a much nicer way of saying it. I normally go with same shit, different smell. (laughs) (laughs) I find it fascinating listening to your take on this. Like you've always been such a, a deep thinker and it's so like fascinating listening to what that has sort of then manifested with you in this this trailing spouse situation 
And I know that this experience that you have gone through, oh, a living, like not even that it's in past tense, but that you that you live on a day-to-day like basis, is I think that it's something that's really interesting in the medical profession that from an outsider, I would assume is not actually really talked about all that much. Am I am I right in thinking that? Um, I think I think it I think it's getting better. Um, so I think people something I've I've learned over the years is that people have big assumptions about doctors and medicine. So um, it. And and I think uh, well, there's certain people who under who have a greater understanding of the training process and the cost of medicine. When I say the cost, the financial and personal cost to become a doctor, and the flip side that most people talk about with medicine is, oh, they make a lot of money. Um, I got a bill the other day for this, or oh, mm. they must be like, you know, you're a doctor's wife. Um, most doctors' wives I have known, uh, particularly during those training years, work. Like I was working uh, for good reasons, but financially I was working. My salary, most of my salary was going towards Dan's training um, so that we weren't going into debt to pay for his training um, because for him to um, train involved um a process of applying for a training program but to get on that training program you have to have a certain number of points so whilst he was working huge hours he then would go and attend training courses which were thousands of dollars plus flying to the training courses plus attending conferences um, trying to write, sorry I was trying to write papers um, so there was a massive cost for us to train and that like I said yeah so so like part of me resigning was like I don't need this financial input anymore because he's no longer training so there was that kind of aspect of it as well um I think yeah long-winded answer um I think what people see of medicine and what it is on the inside of that is quite different um so it's um, there is a, a great network, the Australian Doctors Spouses Network, where um, it's through run through Facebook. Um, I only discovered this probably towards midway through Dan's training, um, and it was amazing to sit there and read these people um, talking about moving. What are some strategies? Or um, I'm moving to this town. It might be Townsville. Is anyone here? Um, people asking a lot of questions, and when I first started to read through this, um, I was really, um, I don't quite know how to explain, um, articulate quite how I felt when I read through it. I just remember thinking, I'm not alone. Um, because a lot of the journey has been um, challenging. It has felt isolating and lonely starting again, again, again. Um, but suddenly realising there's a whole network of people out there who are doing the same thing. And whilst I have never been able to attend any of the meetups or functions because we were never living in the right space at the right time, it's still really encouraging to know that and to be part of that community um, that 
it does you 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 do finish it does get better or the challenges change in a different but knowing that there is that community there is really important um, because it does connect you when you really do feel disconnected I think even our own families couldn't really relate to or really understand what we were going through um they were supportive and loved us but um just didn't really have a full concept of what it was like um particularly in the day-to-day when for Dan he was changing jobs every six to 12 months so he's going through a new workplace he's meeting new people at the same time trying to network trying to do all these training courses trying to do his day-to-day job be on call all those kind of things um it's really as a spouse I think it's um, easy to look back and go, oh, this is traumatic, we have to move again. But what he's going through is immense. Um, and on top of that, I know that there was a lot, there was a lot of guilt from, from him around that too. Um, and um, yeah, a lot of, he, he was feeling the weightiness of it as well as us as a family, as well as our children. Um, so whilst it was isolating, it also drew us together. And I think um, I know of we, we chose to move with as a family. So we had a choice whether um, Dan would go into state for six months and we would stay in Sydney. Um, and we had um, our eldest was almost a year at the time and I was like, no, we're going to go because you might only see her for, you know, an hour a day but we'll never, like, you still have to have a relationship with her and I want to have a relationship with you and I don't I don't want you to be there on your own struggling through things either um, and so I know other medical families um, have made the decision not to so their kids might still be at school um, and the the doctor spouse goes away um, they might catch up on weekends or whatever but as a family we made that decision and I think for us it was the best decision to make for other families they've chosen to do it differently um yeah so I think that um the perception of what it is is often very different to the reality and I don't think it was isolating it sometimes still is um people have their preconceptions about medicine and doctors and that's not something I can control or bear um and I kind of go well some people write 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 you off because you're unmarried to a doctor or they just have these preconceived things about it or they want to be your friend because you're related to a doctor but it's over time and it's like I said I've had a long time of of trying to work through things and I've talked to gone through some therapy about it too but I've had to work out who I am we've had to work out who we are and live our life for what works for us as a family um and not worry so much about what other people think or do and know that it's also shown us that often um you know what people see and the reality of life can be very different um but I think it's forced us to live with intention that we probably wouldn't have had in the same level or way otherwise. I think um, that was a really quite long-winded answer to your <laughs> what should have been a straightforward question.
No, I think it's super interesting what you're saying. I am keen to actually, though, round this out with a different sort of angle to the questions that I normally finish these interviews with. And I normally ask for advice, but I want your advice to be rather specific. Can you give listeners advice on what packing looks like when you are moving house every six to 12 months? Like that sounds a ridiculous question to ask, but like have you got tips and tricks about (laughs) tips and tricks for how you actually physically move towns and countries on a like potentially twice a year? I... I'm a minimalist by nature, maybe not growing up, but um, yes. So I always, even now, um, I declutter our house every six months. It's just that I I found it really confronting to pack up every single possession we owned um, and then unpack it again and again and again. Um, We never had a lot because we were basically uni students, like, for a long time, given like one of us, you didn't have any money to buy stuff years. anyway. So, <laughs> and then, and then it actually the thought of moving anything really helped me not buy things as well because I was like, yeah, oh, it's like the deterrent at the yeah the deterrent at the shop <laughs> or when you have like your yeah. basket of online shopping full and you just do not like empty cart. <laughs> Yes, and like no knickknacks, you know, you do need those knickknack things because they just, you just have to pack them up and wrap them in bubble wrap again. So um, I think I just got into a system and structure. So um, we were, I was always kind of like just get unpacked. Um, and we were living like for a while there was only us and then add one child in, but they don't need that much stuff. Um, so... You just kind of got into it. You knew it was coming up. You knew the move was going to be. We'd get our placements in September, October. Then we'd know, okay, we're moving. The changeovers were February and July, I think. So we knew that was happening. Um, You got in the habit of looking up removalists because we had to pay. Like it's not hospital-funded removing, so you just look up a removalist, look up where you might live. Um, Often Dan would go when we were moving interstate and placement in New Zealand, Dan would go ahead and, like, meet with the hospital people just because he wanted to but also find a place. Um, Thankfully we had a good rental history. But you just kind of, you just went through the motions and you knew that you had a week to pack up. Um, And usually it was that we would be moving the morning and by the afternoon we'd be mostly unpacked. We'd give us, I would try and do it within... um, Within 24 hours of landing, all the boxes were unpacked, folded away, ready for the next move. We've got a system of um, like labelling boxes so that it would say, please put in this room, so the removers would put them in the right rooms. Initially we were doing the moves ourselves and then we got a bit smarter and went, you know what, we're just absolutely knackered. Why don't we pay a little bit of money to do the moves? <laughs> so with kids from then on we've just done had removalists. Um, but, yeah, you just kind of get into a habit of this goes here, this goes there. And since being in our house now, we've gathered a few more things. Um, But the big interstate moves and the international moves, we just went into storage. We just went, don't bother, just put it into storage. Um, But, yeah, you just kind of 
I think it was it now I think about it it's completely nuts but um, at the time you just had a system you went through the processes I did also learn that I had to take a few days off work to prepare for it not just kind of try and work back do all this massive move and then unpack and then keep going for work um yeah I was I learned that the hard way by publishing a a new publication um the week we were moving and I just I don't think I I don't think I slept that week Um, we arrived (laughs) from Darwin to Wollongong on the Saturday um we started Dan had a day and then he started working um and I was just, yeah, I, I unpacked the entire apartment within. I just I just must not have slept. I don't know how I did it, but I was like, I will not do that again. So I think most of our experience in those times have just been big learning experiences. So, yeah. A whole list of even, what even not to do and to guarantee burnout. Yeah, yeah. And and you do, like I, I did have a list of things I started to make. I just had these files of moving boxes and you just print it all off and it's got bedroom one, bedroom two, bedroom three. <laughs> As you pack them, you write down what's in them and things like that. So, and I think the key was just not having, you had enough, not too much. Um, mm, just have less stuff to pack up and move. Good advice. Felicity, I'm really, um, I'm really thrilled to have sort of heard that all like tied up in a nice little bow and and really also I think it should serve as some sort of um, consolation is the wrong word but some sort of like um, I guess feeling for people that are listening to this that it might not be a medical job that's bouncing you around a lot whatever it is that like regular moves on a regular basis to new places and things I think that what's really interesting and I'm really pleased that you were happy to share was the fact that you haven't just kept that all to yourself the fact that there has been therapy involved lots of talking lots of thinking lots of processing and lots of actually acknowledging that doing it actually by yourself is near impossible and you've seen the 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 dark sides of it as well so I'm really like really grateful that you were happy to share that so I think that um I think that everyone listening will very much agree it's been just so interesting sort of hearing your take on things and again I can imagine there is not a single person listening that is jealous about moving houses that many times (laughs) I think also it um as much as it's been stressful, as much as it's been hard, it's also been, like I said, a, you're at the coalface. You kind of learn that you're not in control of your life. Um, like we all can have different levels of control of our life, but we didn't have a choice as to what placement Dan would have, where he'd be going, things like that. Um, but it is really a growth, a time of growth. Like you can either see it as a time of growth or you lose your mind. Um, over it I think that yeah it whilst there's been so many challenges the the danger for us was always when Dan gets on the program or when he finishes the program this is going to happen this is going to be amazing but I still remember the day that he got on the program and we just felt relief it wasn't this wonderful moment of joy and excitement it was just a sense of thankfulness and relief and even getting to the end of the training program. 
like, well, now there's just different challenges in life. Um, mm, there's never not, that Valhalla at the end. Yeah, it's not like, oh, suddenly we're a consultant. It's like, oh, no, now we have to learn what having a business is. And mm. <laughs> it has an expectation for that. Um, well, so that's it's another whole of, episode yeah. in itself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's also like just like in any of these moving experiences, whether it's medicine, whatever it is, it's really easy to set yourself up to be when this happens rather than right now where I am, what can I do, what's happening, what's what's our vision or what's our hope, but it's kind of there always will be challenges um, and it's just yeah. kind of how you navigate them rather than setting yourself up for this imaginary end or utopia of the end yeah Um, yeah so true so true felicity thank you so much for joining me thanks joe thanks for having me it's been lovely to chat i hope you've enjoyed this episode of brunch by the trailing spouse co if you are a trailing spouse anywhere in the world come join us we're a place where you will find other like-minded professional trailing spouses as well as training, education and employment opportunities. Head to thetrailingspouse.co and connect with our network. If you'd like to join me for brunch, you'll find a link on the website to register your interest for a chat. At The Trailing Spouse Co, we are passionate about ensuring that you are connected, your mind is stimulated and that you are always learning on your trailing spouse journey.